Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, a conversation about identity and patriarchy through what might seem an unlikely lens. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There's an episode in season two, I think, called Reptile Boy. And the whole plot of that episode is that there's a frat house, and the way that these uh, white men stay in power is that they have to bring women to the basement and feed the women to a snake. So it's like pretty on the nose with, you know, the patriarchy. Yes. Uh, gotta keep women down in the basement, feed them to a lizard or a snake. Hi, and welcome to the show. Just ahead, we'll speak with a co-founder of the wildly popular podcast, Buffering the Vampire Slayer, devoted to dissecting every single episode in all seven seasons of the cult classic series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and why it connects to queer culture and a challenge to the patriarchy. But first, something more somber. Last spring, we interviewed Rabbi Rachel Grant Meyer, the education director for HIAS, the refugee organization thrust into the spotlight this weekend after the mass shooting at a Pittsburgh synagogue where 11 people were killed and six injured by an anti-Semite and Islamophobe. Apparently, he'd fixated on Hias and their work with refugees of all ethnicities and was animated by right-wing fear-mongering about Central American refugees currently heading north from Mexico. The sad irony, of course, is that those who intended to stoke hysteria before the midterms, claiming there were terrorists mixed in with these refugees, helped stoke one of the worst homegrown terrorist attacks in recent memory. In light of highest being in the news, we wanted to replay a clip from our interview and help provide a bit more accurate perspective on highest and their mission. So I would say that these changes in policies and, and the increase in xenophobia are really fueled by feelings mm. more than actual beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so part of what we have to do is help people unpack their fear uh, to really drill down. Some people can't even name that it is fear that's right. driving them, right? right. Uh, but to keep asking questions and to be open-minded, I think we're living in a time of really increased polarization. Mm -hmm. And so the more we can ask questions about why people are expressing the sentiments that they are, mm. uh, and then help them understand, particularly with refugees, who refugees actually are, right? right? To tell human interest stories, because I can give you all the statistics in the universe, mm -hmm. but it, you can give me a different set right back. Right. Numbers don't sound like people. Absolutely not, but mm -hmm. people sound like people. And yes. so when we tell the stories of refugees, when we tell the stories of mothers who want a better life for their children, when we tell the story of fathers who want to be able to express their political opinions without having their lives threatened, that's when we help people break down those walls and those barriers, and right. I think we get past that fear. What does a refugee resettlement organization do when it doesn't have enough refugees to resettle because they're not being let in? So we continue to advocate staunchly and strongly for the United States refugee admissions to try mm -hmm. to get those numbers up. So advocacy is a huge part of what we're doing right now, both to ensure that the numbers are what they should be mm -hmm. and that the funding for that program remains secure so that right. we can resettle people. Uh, we also assist thousands of refugees who are already here in this country. Right. You know, refugees come to this country and that's just the first step in really rebuilding their lives. Right. So a lot of what we do 
is try to help refugees integrate into their communities, to mm -hmm. find jobs, to learn English, uh, to enroll their kids in school, all the things that you would imagine you would need to do as you rebuild your life. Uh, so we have thousands of volunteers who are helping us to do that in addition to our professional staff. Uh, and again, that advocacy is just so critical in right. this moment. Following the shooting, Hyas put out this statement. After expressing sorrow for the loss and hope that Jewish communities in Pittsburgh and across the nation can find healing. As one of the nine national refugee resettlement agencies, highest partners with the United States government to resettle refugees as part of the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. Founded in 1881 as the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, highest stands for a world in which refugees find welcome, safety, and freedom. Guided by Jewish values and history, highest rescues people whose lives are in danger for being who they are. We'll be right back. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a movie turned TV show turned pop culture sensation. It's been a minute since Buffy's original run, which spanned seven seasons from 1996 to 2003, and toppled barriers about feminism, queerness, and mental health. Inspiring everything from an ever-expanding fan fiction archive on the internet, mostly Tumblr, to its very own comic by publishing house Dark Horse. It seems that 15 years after the finale, Buffy is still alive and well. If you want proof that nothing can drive a stake through Buffy's life after death, there's now the hugely popular podcast, Buffering the Vampire Slayer, named one of Esquire's top 10 podcasts of 2018. Hosts Kristen Russo and Jenny Owens-Young guide their listeners episode by episode, compose original music, and single-handedly try to take down the demon lizard patriarchy. But we'll get to that in a moment. Here with us today is Kristen Russo, a native Brooklynite. Kristen, welcome to 112BK. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It is so great to have you here. I'm so ready to jump in and have this conversation. Now, you had not watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer until you met Jenny, and Jenny was like, you've got to do it. Exactly. So yeah. I watched in like 2000 and. 12 maybe right. so far after it had originally aired I, I i grew up with it you know i'm right. a similar high school class to buffy but um i hadn't seen it i hadn't seen it in real time i had just seen like an episode here or there how do you go from a skeptic because you were pretty skeptical right like yeah, I mean, I, has, I saw the movie first, so I was like, who's this girl? This yeah. is the Buffy I knew, you know. But that only deterred you until around 2012, yeah. which must have been a fantastic time because now you're hosting a Buffy inspired podcast. Yeah, it actually took me two tries to get through the series because the, really? the first season is, and I tell this to people who are about to start a watch, is the first season is a little rocky. You know, mm -hmm. they're finding their feet. You don't know the characters yet. You don't have the love for them. And so I watched part of the first season and was like, you know, I'm okay. Like, not for me. Right. right. And then like a year later, Jenny was like, what if we start in season two. And like, mm -hmm. I give you some of the backstory and we just jumped to season two. And so that's what we did. And that's when I fell in love with the show, with the characters, with the whole thing. Buffy has been off air for almost 15 years, but like we said, still as relevant now <laughs> as she was then. Where, where do you see some of the remnant influences of the show in pop culture that's contemporary right now? I mean, I think that the show is is relevant with everything that's happening around us because right. a there's this feminist 
hero in mm-hmm. the center, a woman that's just kicking big bads all across town. Yes. And there's also, you know, elements of chosen family and there's elements of certainly queerness and sexuality mm-hmm. that are built into the show. And so I think that those themes are are going to be forever, you know, forever relevant as, right. as good or bad as that might be. I think we're always going to need to hear the message that like we can fight against evil and and right. win. <laughs> I had a friend who said without Buffy and specifically the Buffy musical episode, mm. which I have not seen, there would be no glee. Oh, well, actually, I don't even know exactly like historically how that musical episode falls within like musical things on television right but it was pretty monumental at the time it was and yeah it's moved masses (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it almost and I don't know that that's true either but I feel in a lot of ways like I remember there was a Buffy musical episode and then there was who else did a musical episode not too long after that, that was a big deal. Scrubs, I oh, think, yeah. did a musical yeah, episode. Yeah, Scrubs did. There was, and then, really like, The Magicians, I think, has yeah. done a couple musical episodes. They and have. Yeah, there's... And I think it started with Buffy, though. You know, I don't want to... I know, I should know. Then, but like... you see, I'm only an expert up to where I am, which is right. season four. So <laughs> I'm not to season six yet. Why does a show like Buffy appeal to not just a feminist audience, but also a queer audience? Because being in the community, it is weird to everyone else that I still have not seen Buffy the Vampire. Okay, so first of all, am I going to spoil you? Like, am I talking right now to you? I'm going to spoil you on the show? This is horrible. But it's not going to make me not watch it. (laughs) Okay. I frequently have done things like go to watch parties that were the last episode of a show I didn't watch and watched it with everybody else and been like, oh, I'll I'll go watch it now. Well, I think like, I I, I can talk around it. I can pad around it for you. Pad around it But there, I mean, you know, the queerness in the show is direct. Certainly, Mm -hmm. like, we get two characters who are actually queer or or bisexual, or that's a whole other conversation to have of like what wait, that wait, identity is. Are you talking is. about Willow and Terry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Well. Listen, I just don't, you know, I'm not in the business. My podcast is spoiler free, right. even though it's 20 <laughs> years after the fact. So wow. I don't want to spoil you like on television right now. That's hilarious. Um, but yeah, so there's like queer characters, mm-hmm. but it's it's way more than that. I mean, there's like an inherent queerness to like Buffy as the Slayer, right? That there's a right. whole scene in which she comes out to her mom as the Slayer and her mom's like, have you tried not being the Slayer? Like, <laughs> they, you know, they hit it on the head. And right. um, and I think that the, the reason that these themes go beyond sexuality too is that it's, it's sci-fi. I get in trouble when I call it sci-fi because it's actually mm-hmm. like horror fantasy, whatever. You know, it's in <laughs> it's in that genre where right. you can take metaphor, like you can take those metaphors and extrapolate them out to be relevant to um, what you're going through personally or mm-hmm. what like we're going through in the world or what have you. Um, but yeah, the show is so gay. <laughs> <laughs> so gay. <laughs> I love that. I love that it is. And you know, um, even though that's the case, quite a few of the people who are huge fans of the show who over the years have really tried to get me to watch it, and I, I'm stubborn to a fault. One of them is like my my second dad, you know, <laughs> like who has two boys and is like a big football head, you know. All but Buffy, it like there's something about Buffy. Yeah, I mean it's it's also like brilliantly written and brilliantly right. executed just as a series in general. You know, I, someone told me at the beginning of the podcast that one of the reasons that Buffy is is really set apart from so many other television shows mm-hmm. is that the arcs of the series or the arc of the series is strong, but also the arcs of the seasons are really strong, which right. is rare in television to like have all of those things be strong. Right. And the characters are are brilliant and and beautiful and you know alive in a way where like. <laughs> 
<laughs> when I went back to watch the right. first season again, or for the first time, I, I loved the first season because right. I was in love with the characters at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you said very much alive, and I was like, oh, well. Yeah, some of them. Yeah, some, um, of them. <laughs> some of them. Very much undead. Um, <laughs> you have a very engaged and excitable Twitter following. Yeah. Which is really, really, really lovely to watch. Like, it it's is. It's just people enjoying something together and being really, really enthusiastically into it together. But what is what is it that you hear from your fans most? A community has been formed. So like what we hear from them and what we talk about is that community. They have mm -hmm. started book clubs. There's groups in like every city in the United States and like some overseas that wow. get together and have like buffering nights. And, and they've, it's sort of like, like I have the chills. I like, I mm -hmm. genuinely have the chills when I think about it and when I like read the things that they're doing. They have just found each other in a space. And, and in a time when, so many of us are really like struggling to find other people oh, yeah. who are like-minded to us and who share our values and right. our beliefs. So that's the thing that happens most in that group. I mean, of course, there's like a bunch of nerding out about, you know, oh, yeah. buffy facts and things like that. But truly, it's more about finding their community than anything else. Well, you know, part of finding a community, I think, is often having little things that are just for the community and are in the community and that any if somebody who was outside the community would not know what you were talking right. about or what that had to do with anything and I know you guys have some of those little inside jokes and mantras <laughs> one of the things that I really want you to explain to me is smashing <laughs> the demon lizard patriarchy well <laughs> um so, okay, so there's an episode in season two, I think, called Reptile mm -hmm. Boy. And the whole plot of that episode is that there's a frat house and the way that these uh, white men stay in power is that they have to bring women to the basement and feed the women to a snake. So it's like pretty on the nose with, you know, the patriarchy. Yep. Uh, Got to keep women down in the basement, feed them to a lizard or a snake. I don't think a snake is a lizard, but that's for another day. <laughs> uh and so that uh, episode inspired us to write a song, mm -hmm. which has uh, lyrics along the lines of Smash the Demon Lizard Patriarchy. But mm -hmm. the bigger thing is is that like right around that episode, or maybe a little after that, we wrote a jingle. We write jingles for characters, and we write jingles also for Smashing the Patriarchy. And right. it, it's such a like core part of our show that um, we play the jingle now once every episode, oh uh, which is just like a thunderclap, lightning, mwah, ah, 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 ah. That's the hilarious. To yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about some of the um, derivative art that ends up coming from Buffy because there's the fan fiction of which I've read a little. Didn't get it because I hadn't watched the show. Yeah. Shouldn't have done it. I'll revisit <laughs> after I watch the show. Um, but there's you know role play. There's screenings. There's videos. I mean, is Buffy part of a zeitgeist? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you're asking somebody who's like creating art from the television show itself and then watching people create more art from the art that we're making from the show. Right. I, I do. I think that it inspires. I, I mean, it, I think that it will be alive forever or I guess undead is the word. We're right now. <laughs> uh, but I, I do because it, it's it's inspirational and it's really powerful to take something that already existed and to say, like, this is what this means to me and this is what this means now. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, it you know, it, the messages were certainly still on on point in the 90s. Yeah. But now we're contextualizing them here, you know, in 2018, when um, we're facing a whole bunch of, 
I can't say bad words on this, can I? <laughs> yeah, you can. I can? <laughs> oh, I was just going to say bullshit. A whole bunch of bullshit. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I get that. I say that sometimes. Because <laughs> sometimes stuff's bullshit. Yeah. And it's just what it is. And we are facing a lot of bullshit. And a show like Buffy can go one or two ways. You're going to watch it and either be like, we're still dealing with this stuff? Or you're going to watch it and think, oh, man, it's really nice to watch other people go through this stuff (laughs) and have it not be in my own life and in my own head. Because I got to tell you, the next time a vampire attacks me in the street, (laughs) I'm going to lose my mind. So I listened to the first two episodes. This is funny because, like, that's why I made this joke, because you guys were talking about how the town where Buffy and her island of misfit toys live (laughs) um, is full of alleys. Oh my God, so many. It's just all alleys that intersect. (laughs) And it just made me think, like, with a show like this that is, like, so easy to sort of make fun of Mm -hmm. in a certain way, but Mm -hmm. to have fun doing it, taking it seriously, what does that give you? Listen, (laughs) Ashley... You haven't watched it yet. So I can't wait to sit down. I, you have to promise me that after you watch the series, we get to sit down again, and then you can ask me the same yes. question. Because then you'll know. Yes. You'll look in my eyes, and we'll share <laughs> a deep knowledge, a deep understanding. But I I mean, the show is serious, right? That's what's, right. That's what's incredible about the show. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the 90s, and it's monsters. So it's just right. a hysterical thing. You know, the werewolf costumes, we joke all the time about them being like bought at the dollar store. Like they just look, you know, the effects are not like necessarily on point and this and that. But the message underneath is Mm -hmm. one that is super serious and one that is super relevant. So it's fun because you can laugh at a thing, but also take meaning from it, which kind of is, I think, what the podcast is doing. Yeah. Right. That we're like allowing people an escape in a sense from like the day to day, Mm -hmm. but also we're using it as a lens to look at the day to day which I think is what Buffy does you really are and you know one of the I think very serious effects even though we talked about it a little bit earlier is sort of like that representation factor of seeing otherness played out yeah on the screen and I feel like with a lot of marginalized communities and especially with the queer community you want to go into places that are outside of reality. And so you want to go into these more transgressive spaces that deal with the darkness, that deal with horror and fantasy and all those things and watch this play out. But do you think that that maybe keeps these stories in transgressive spaces instead of into more reality-based? So, like, you're saying... in a good in a good way to yes. keep them there. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean I think that I think that what you get to do with fantasy and horror and all these things is you get to look at things that can be really painful to look at, mm-hmm. um, but you get to kind of see them from vantage points that you can't when you're looking only at the reality. Right. Um, and and I think that that I mean that is like that is why like sci-fi has come to mean so much to me in horror and fantasy. Um, I've been recently watching The Haunting of Hill House. I don't know oh, if me you've too taken a journey on that. Yes, but I have. So that is I'm only I'm like six episodes in. I live by myself and I'm very scared all the time. But I don't I'm, know how but, you do. <laughs> slowly. So, <laughs> but like that. You know, that's like a current thing in my mind of that happening, too. Right. We're looking at really painful things, Mm -hmm. um, which which are more familial. But like we're looking at painful things, but we're looking at them through this like horror lens. And I think that we can see things about Mm -hmm. ourselves and about 
sexuality, about race, about like religion, about all, you know, whatever the thing it is that we're pulling apart, we right. can see them more clearly when we're like taking a different angle, yeah. a fantastical angle. So yeah, I think it's an incredibly powerful tool. Have you seen the show Castle Rock? I have. It's funny, when you said that, the thing that I started thinking about was the episode of Castle Rock where you really see what happens for Ruth in a day. <sighs> and that episode. that episode, but here's why that episode messed me up because I felt like after watching that episode, and it's a horror show, yeah. but after watching that episode, I felt like I finally understood a little bit what it felt like to be a person with dementia. Mm -hmm. And it was, and it's terrifying. And it's terrifying, but it was also so like, yeah, like it felt like, get, you know, like when they say when you learn something, you get another wrinkle in your brain. Yeah. I felt like I got a new wrinkle. Totally. I felt like I felt it happen. Yes. So I really liked that. And I really liked the way you talked about these characters in the podcast. I want everybody to listen to this podcast because when I start watching the show, I want to be able to talk to people about the <laughs> podcast. But before we go, my last question for you is who is your favorite character today? So this is like a shifting thing for me. Oh, I know. Because I, <laughs> you're like, I set you up for this. I did. So my favorite character on my first watch was Spike. Mm -hmm. um, and I still love Spike. Mm -hmm. However, Spike is like a white cis dude, uh, mm -hmm. and he's super problematic for many reasons, some mm -hmm. which we have not even unpacked yet in the podcast universe, right. which I am very scared to get to. Mm -hmm. uh, however, on this second watch, I've just been like, I love Spike, I love you, but I am gravitating toward a different character, and that mm. character is Anya. Oh. Anya, now you have, I mean, you haven't seen us, and Anya's like not one of the, like Anya doesn't begin at the start of the series. No, she doesn't. But Anya is a, um, a former vengeance demon mm -hmm. uh, that becomes human, and so she's sort of like learning how to be a person for the first time, but she's an adult person, and she's very, very like genuine and forthright, uh, speaks her mind, because she doesn't know anybody better uh and you know there's a lot of so anya anya is becoming my favorite i'm i'm, I'm transitioning right now so I just, i'm gonna know, ask you that question again yeah yeah when we come back <laughs> thank you so much for being yeah. here buffering the vampire slayer podcast is amazing <laughs> and it's so fun to listen to they're hilarious so i want everybody to listen thank to you it. thank you so much for having me thank you for coming <laughs> And now some news. In the wake of the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting Saturday morning, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams is calling on off-duty police officers to arm themselves when they go into houses of worship. He made his comments at a news conference with Jewish leaders Sunday. Adams said he will bring his handgun every time he enters a church or synagogue to worship, and he is calling for other officers who are off-duty to do the same. Adams finished his remarks by saying, we cannot continue to stand by and watch innocent people lose their lives to sick people who are carrying handguns and shooting innocent people in the fashion that we saw. As well-intentioned as Adams' comments were, it's misleading to focus on handguns when the shooter used an assault rifle. And just the prevailing wisdom, we might not want to bring more guns into places of worship. It's something to think about. 
Last week at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, a new hub opened offering virtual and augmented reality experiences to students and professionals. Welcome to the R-Lab, a high-tech facility occupying the entire third floor of the Yard's Building 22 on Sand Street and expected to bring 500 jobs to the shipyard. Our lab debuted weeks after local leaders announced plans for a new school dedicated to science, math, engineering, and the arts coming to the Yards Building 77 on Flushing Avenue, which is just one of a handful of developments planned for the 300-acre riverfront campus. Funded by a multi-million dollar investment from the city that officials said is worth every penny, the hope is that our lab and the STEM school will produce the future leaders of the fast-developing AR industry. After hitting a wall of community opposition at a CB6 meeting Thursday night, Fortis Property Group withdrew its application to build a nine-foot-high brick wall as part of the planned luxury Five River Park development in Cobble Hill's historic section. The design called for the wall to extend 49 feet around a proposed swimming pool at 347 Henry Street. A nine-foot solid wall for nearly 50 linear feet is not appropriate in our landmark neighborhood, and there is no precedent for such a wall, said the Cobble Hill Association before emerging victorious. I guess now we can see how the other half swims? I don't know. Welcome to your worst nightmares, Brooklyn. The aptly named Nightmare Machine, a pop-up experience in Williamsburg, is not a haunted house, but is definitely inspired by one. Nine rooms have been turned into ghastly, Instagram-ready art installations. There's the cockroach room, 10,000 cockroaches crawling up the walls. Yes, that's an appropriate nightmare. It's already mine. There's another with a creepy twist on doing laundry. Body bags hanging upside down, waiting on the spin cycle. It takes guts to enter the room with walls lined with intestines, leading you into the pit of hell what I call my toilet. Just kidding. The Nightmare Machine is open every night until Halloween, though many shows are already sold out. Find your tickets at visitnightmaremachine.com. And that's the show for today. We'll be back tomorrow with the author of Ghostland and the recently crowned Miss Subways. Don't miss it. One One Two BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It is also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Kritzi Roberts, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario, and it is edited by Mira Al Rahim. Our executive producers are Aziz Aishum, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>